It's time for Government Gone Wild, a no-holds-barred podcast, dissecting the most controversial topics in the news right now. Edgy, fast-paced, and with a bit of humor, conservative libertarian host Kristen Tate digs beyond the headlines to illuminate the issues people care about, the ones career politicians in D.C. just don't understand. And now, your host, Kristen Tate. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot it's a cultural appropriation to say y'all if you're not from the South. So, uh, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for my second ever episode of my new podcast, Government Gone Wild. Now, I hope you guys all tuned in last week. I interviewed Sabo, a conservative street artist, very interesting fellow. Uh, you've got to check out that episode if you haven't already. But this week, I want to talk about something a little bit different. I want to explore the the similarities or the potential similarities between the Bernie Sanders-loving populism wing of the Democratic Party and the Donald Trump-loving populism wing of the Republican Party. Now, off the bat, these two groups could not seem more different. But when you really think about it, they seem to have more in common than most people realize. And it makes me wonder about the future of the two-party system, the identities of each political party, and whether or not new political parties will emerge in the coming years. Now, before we can kind of ponder those questions, though, we need to understand what is going on right now within both existing parties. Now, if you've been listening to the news or or cable at all for the last year and a half, you've probably heard about the quote-unquote civil war going on within the Republican Party. That's basically just a dramatic way of stating that the Republican Party is very divided and fractured right now. On one hand, you have the establishment wing of the party made up of the John McCains, the Mitt Romneys, and the Paul Ryans. And then you have the populism wing of the party, which of course uh, is made up of the Donald Trumps of the world. And it does seem like these two factions of the party are growing apart from each other when it comes to both style and ideology. So that's, that's what's going on on the Republican side. Now on the Democratic side... They are also very divided, but the media doesn't like to talk about that. Uh, on, on the Democratic side, of course, you have the, again, the establishment wing made up of people like Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, folks who are certainly Democrats, but they're more to the center. And then you have the growing progressive wing of the party made up of people like Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. And this wing of the party has a lot of young excitement behind it, a lot of millennials, a lot of uh, new faces to the Democratic Party. Now, in my opinion, the Democratic Party is actually much more divided than the Republican Party. And I, I see the fractures there only becoming deeper. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that the Democrats won't acknowledge the problems within their own party. But as a young person, I can see those problems firsthand. Now, of course, I'm a millennial. Most of my friends are millennials. And I can tell you that that, that most of the young people that I associate with loved Bernie Sanders. I mean, as old and wrinkly and decrepit as he may be, that dude is a rock star to so many young people. 
I mean, I have this one friend in New York City who, um, you know, she was never politically active uh, at all before. Never really had strong opinions about politics. But when Bernie Sanders emerged, she got really energetic, very passionate about politics. And uh, she was one of those people who would show up at all of the rallies, all of the marches for Bernie here in New York City. And she was not the only one. I mean, Bernie's marches in the city got thousands of young people to show up. And trust me, these people weren't showing up for Hillary Clinton. But the way Bernie was treated during the Democratic primary really highlighted the divisions in the party and and made them much worse. You want to talk about treating a candidate unfairly? I mean, a WikiLeaks leak in 2016, they, they dumped 20,000 DNC emails from the last year and a half showing DNC staff discussing how to deal with Bernie Sanders as a challenge to Hillary Clinton. And, and, you know, instead of treating Sanders like a viable candidate for the ticket, the DNC in these emails was actively working against him to ensure that Hillary Clinton won the nomination. And we're not talking about, you know, low-down people at the DNC. We're talking about big people here. The deputy communications director, his name is Eric Walker. He sent many emails to DNC staffers. And he, in those emails, he cited numerous articles showing Sanders leading Clinton in certain states. And they were discussing how to deal with this problem to ensure that Hillary won the nomination. They really exhibited a resentful disdain towards Sanders. And I think that really soured a lot of his supporters, not just on Hillary Clinton, but the Democratic Party in general. And of course, it wasn't just the DNC that was treating uh, Sanders unfairly. It was the media, too. I mean, look, we know Hillary Clinton received the debate questions in advance for at least one primary debate. And then, of course, there's the whole superdelegates thing. And, and you know, superdelegates, they are allowed to to support whichever candidate they want. But when you really look at the numbers, it, it does seem unfair. In Colorado, okay, Bernie took 59% of the vote in their caucus, in their Democratic caucus. But in that state, the 10 superdelegates all backed Hillary Clinton. So Sanders won over 50% of the vote there, but yet didn't get one superdelegate. Similar thing in Washington state. He won 73% of the vote there, even a larger margin that he won by. And yet all 10 superdelegates there went to Hillary Clinton. Seems pretty unfair to me. And uh, a lot of my millennial friends agree. And that's why they didn't vote for Hillary. They are mad. They are angry. They want nothing to do with the Democratic Party. And uh, we saw this hatred play out recently when a couple of weeks ago at an event, the new DNC chair, who's kind of a, an establishment guy, his name is Tom Perez, was introduced at an event where a lot of young Democrats were, and he was booed. He was booed that the chair of the DNC was booed by members of his own party. That right there, folks, shows you just how deep the divide actually is. Now, the point here and the point of understanding the current state of each political party is that it could be argued that both the Republicans and the Democrats have such deep divides that each one could potentially be split into two political parties. 
If things keep going the way they're going, we could see a total breakdown of the two-party system. Think about this. In theory, there could be a Democratic Party, a Progressive Party, a Republican Party, and a right-leaning Populist Party. So four parties there. Or in another scenario, we could see the Democrat and Republican centrists come together to form their one establishment party, and then the populists on the left and the right may come together to form their own party. Now, I know it seems like the progressives and the right-leaning populists couldn't be more different, but I actually have a political expert here today as my guest who argues that they're actually quite similar. So we're going to find out from him what those similarities are and if he thinks there's any chance that the populist right and left could someday come together to form one party. All right, guys, so we have Harlan Hill on the show today. I am so lucky to have him here because I really think he's one of the busiest guys in New York City. Harlan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I think we first met on Fox News, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember what green room it was, but maybe when we were going on to do O'Reilly or something, but it, yeah, it's yeah. been a while. Yeah, you know, I, so just for the listeners out there, I met Harlan at Fox News for some show. We went on the show together and I was like, oh my gosh, I agree with this guy on, on so many things. <laughs> you know, we were definitely on the same team and Harlan's a phenomenal debater. And uh, we, we got off camera and I went home and I, I followed Harlan on Twitter and I clicked on his website, and I was fascinated to learn about his background. Uh, Harlan used to be a Democratic strategist, and uh, he, he has advised over 100 campaigns. And he's a former Bernie Sanders supporter. But then when Bernie dropped out of the race, he switched over to support Trump. And since then, I mean, he's been all over the news. You've probably seen him on Fox News and CNN tons of times. He's also an entrepreneur and a political consultant. So Harlan, I just want to ask you, what made you switch from from supporting Bernie Sanders initially to Trump? Because that seems like such an incredible swap there. Absolutely. Well, you know, people like to refer to me as a as a Bernie Sanders supporter. I always sort of tepidly supported Bernie. It was because the Democratic primary in 2016 was a binary choice, right? I mean, I could either have um, a, a liar um, somebody that had deceived the American public on many occasions, somebody that had abused her uh, position of power to enrich herself and her friends and her family, or I could vote for Bernie Sanders, who uh, love him or hate him uh, is really authentic. And, um, and, and it, was, it was an easy choice for me. I, I couldn't vote for her. So I was a Democrat at the time. I'd worked for um, over our, you know, uh, over 100. Actually, by the time I was done working in democratic politics, it was over 120 campaigns. Um, and, uh, and, and so my allegiances weren't to, certainly weren't to the Republicans. I, I didn't know that much about Trump at the time. And uh, so I, I picked Bernie. And as the primary unfolded and I saw how crooked and corrupt the, the, the Democratic nominating process was, everything from super delegates to you know, these back part, these uh, backdoor uh, tricks that they were trying to pull to to, to ram Hillary through. I, I was like, I, there's no way I'm going to at the end of this process when we're when we're done in Philadelphia and Hillary Clinton's nominated as the Democratic nominee. Um, there's no way I'm going to support her. And so I, 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 I a few months out from that, I started really taking a hard look at what my options were on the Republican side. And what amazed me, what amazed me was that 
Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were talking about the same problems. They were talking about how globalism has ravaged the American middle class and how the Democrat and Republican establishments have sent millions of American jobs overseas in the process, and they've turned their back on the American people. I was like, wow, this guy is talking some sense. I mean, it is, it, he's, a, he's a little different. He's a showman for sure, but he's talking about the right issues. And, uh, and that, that's, that's how it started. And, and I quickly got in line for Trump. That's so interesting. So, so just to back up a little bit uh, and getting back to that Democratic primary, yeah. give me like three to five reasons why you, why you supported Bernie on, on an ideological level. Yeah, well, for one, was that, that, that issue that I mentioned previously, which is um, trade. You know, we, have, we in fact have seen through, the, through NAFTA and other trade deals, this giant sucking sound that was predicted of American jobs out of the heartland of America and sent to the sent overseas. Um, you know, that, that was one of the defining issues of the Democratic primary, in my opinion. And it was defining because Hillary Clinton took so long to get in line on the issue of trade and because she had a legacy while she was at the State Department of calling TPP, which would have been NAFTA on steroids, the gold standard, right? So that was that was the defining issue. Also, you know, getting beyond that, I liked what Bernie was saying. Bernie Bernie called out Obamacare as being a failure, and he took a lot of flack from mainline Democrats for doing it. But he's right. He he was right. Obamacare is a handout to the insurance industry, and it created a mountain of regulations that led to a massive consolidation in in in, in terms of the hospital systems and and the doctor groups across this country that drove up costs. And, and decreased outcomes and, uh, and and made things worse. So Bernie's solution was different than what I, I mean. I believe in free markets, right? I do. But at least Bernie was talking about it. At least he had the decency to point to it and say that this is a really important issue that we need to tackle. And his, his, his solution to it was different, but at least he was acknowledging it. And as a Democrat, that was rare. Um, For sure. And, and then also, I mean, the third I would, I would toss in here, and I think that this is a – this has the potential to be – a huge issue, not just for my generation, but it will have ripples throughout the entire economy. And it's the looming student debt crisis. I believe that this is a really big issue. Now, his solution is to give it out to everybody, right? It's to just, just uh, the government's just going to fund the cost of, uh, of college for everybody. It's going to subsidize it. You know, there, there are arguments be made there, and I, I'm willing to engage in that. You know, I, 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 I traditionally have problems with, with government handing out that kind of entitlement. But but at, at least it's a solution where we transfer that burden from everyday Americans that can't escape the servitude of uh, financing their debt for 30 years. It's a mortgage. You graduate from college, you've got a mortgage you can't escape. At least he's talking about a solution to it instead of turning his back on millions of Americans. So those were the three issues that I were that, 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 that drew me to, to Bernie. And, 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 I, and I mentioned those with caveats. Like I said, I didn't always agree with his solutions to these issues. But he was talking about things that I really cared about. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, having the guts and the wherewithal to stand up and say that. I mean, the fourth I'll add in here really quick is, you know, doing some nation building at home. I mean, mm-hmm. President, now President Donald Trump said that on many occasions when he was running. Bernie said the same, same thing. You know, instead of financing these wars abroad that are going to entangle Americans for a long, long time, and we're going to spend all of our fortune there building schools in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, 
you know, we've got crumbling schools here in Brooklyn. Um, you know, so those, the, all, I mean, there's a lot of commonality between these two guys. And, and, and those were those were the things that drew me to Bernie in the first place and then to, to Trump after that. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. All four of those things that you just pointed out are, are concerns for Trump supporters as well. I see a lot of similarities within the populist wings of both parties. And mm-hmm. uh, I think you just did a pretty good job of outlining some of those similarities. But I want to ask you, what was what was the reaction from other Bernie supporters when they found out that <laughs> you had switched over to Trump? Um, well, in terms of people in the media elite, people that I know from the green rooms at CNN and Fox and elsewhere, um, it wasn't positive. They were like, are you you kidding? You know, it's like, like, you really don't believe this, right? And (laughs) that that was the overwhelming, that was the overwhelming message that I got from um, fellow Bernie surrogates. Um, But, you know, from everyday Americans, people that I would meet, people that would email me. I mean, when I, at the height of the campaign, when I was on TV every day, I would get, thousands thousands and thousands of emails a week i mean no exaggeration from from everyday americans saying you're saying exactly what i think i'm a lifelong democrat and 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 this is when i started getting those probably you know over the summer of 16 i realized that i i had put my finger on something that existed in the electorate and it, it defined how i looked at the election from there on it actually made me better at doing what i was doing on tv and it was that I realized that I wasn't an anomaly. There were a lot of everyday Americans, a lot of blue collar Democrats, a lot of people in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, places that were traditionally part of that blue wall that the Hillary team kept talking about that were saying what I was saying. And, and I remember I remember I took that knowledge and I, and I would say it on TV. I said that the, the polling that we're seeing is undersampling these Trump voters. And and I remember I, I was on CNN and I was I was called a conspiracy theorist because I said <laughs> maybe maybe the polling's wrong. I said maybe you're really undersampling these people. And um and 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 that perfectly encapsulates the problem with the media in the last election, which is that you know for for people in the media, the world is a mirror. And what I mean by that is that they look at the world and they think that everything is like them. Or at least they did until election day, and they they really did not see this coming. And so when they when they thought I was when when they accused me of being a conspiracy theorist on CNN for saying the polling was wrong, they they, they really believed that it was such an outrageous implication that I that or charge that I was making that it that it was that it was, that it was out, uh, unbelievable. And 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 in hindsight, it, it it's turned out to be true. And that's oh, yeah. that's what happens when you have a media that doesn't get outside of the this Beltway corridor. Yeah, you turned out to be totally right. And and Harlan, I still think they don't get it. I think that the media still doesn't understand mm-hmm. why Trump won. And I think that they still don't understand that there is a large percentage and possibly a growing percentage of traditional Democrats who do support Trump. And, and even if they don't support Trump, they're starting to kind of cool towards this, this growing, out-of-touch wing of the democratic party which we would call the establishment wing you're you're right you know how i know they don't get it is because they're still talking about russia 
They're still talking about hacking. They're still talking about WikiLeaks. They're still making excuses. And it's everything but, hey, maybe we got it wrong. They've still not done that little bit of self-reflection that you would expect after getting it so wrong. And it starts at the top. I mean, Hillary Clinton still hasn't done enough self-reflection to take responsibility for her loss. Yeah, you know, just the other day she came out and she was blaming misogyny and Russia. I, I couldn't uh, believe it. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Yeah, yeah. Well, she began it by saying, oh, "I'm going to take res- I'm taking responsibility for the loss." I mean, she <laughs> right. I think she listed all the reasons why you know she wasn't <laughs> taking responsibility for it. So you know, it, but but that bodes well for Trump. Yeah. They they don't understand the dynamics that are at play with populism. And I and I another reason that I thought that Trump could win was because the Clinton campaign severely underestimated the populist movement in the Democratic Party uh, supporting Bernie Sanders. They really didn't see it coming. Not only and that, but read, they treated yeah. they treated the Bernie supporters horribly. They did. Well, and you you look at it. You, you can re- in this book Shattered, which is just great. I mean, there's so many anecdotes in there. Their their strategy in the general election from Michigan and Wisconsin was to not go there because they didn't want to remind voters why they should, why they don't like Hillary Clinton in the first place. That was their strategy. They, they determined, or their theory was in the primary, they had, they had sent Hillary to those places too much. And they, and people saw this, they saw Hillary so much that they were reminded, I don't really like her. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's exactly what I don't want in Washington. And so, um, you know, they're, 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 these problems go beyond, um, you know, beyond just this self-reflection. And it, it also goes to the core of the Democratic Party, which, which is a very interesting topic because the Democratic Party has no bench at this point. And that's another thing that bodes really well for Trump. Who is going to stand up and fill this void left by Barack Obama? Because love him or hate him, he was a clear leader for the Democrats. And now they have nobody. They have nobody. Yeah, it's, it really seems like the future of the Democratic Party is uh, kind of questionable. I, I wrote a column about this recently in The Hill. I mean, I don't see any strong, young, vibrant, emerging leaders that could unite both wings of the party. But before we get to the Democratic Party, while we're still mm-hmm. on this this topic of populism, I want to know, do you think that this rise in populism on both sides of the aisle could potentially change the two-party system. I mean, do you think we're going to see the emergence of new parties, or do you kind of think that the existing Republican and Democratic parties are just going to kind of evolve? It's already happened. The change is happening right now, before our eyes. I mean, it's it 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 happened in the last election, and. I mean, if you look at, at President Donald Trump, if you look at his agenda, what he ran on, his style, he he's nothing like the Republican Party of old. He's not Jeb Bush. You know, there, there's not a – there's not um, – I mean, if you had told me six years ago that the Republican Party would have nominated a candidate for president that was questioning – free trade, it would have, I mean, I would have laughed at you. Right. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're all, there's already a significant shift in the electorate that, that's taken place. And, and, and people are following. I mean, a lot of people like me voted, for, voted Republican for the very first time in our lives. 
and a lot of people much older than me, you know, people in their 60s, in their 50s, um, voting Republican for the first time in their lives. These are people that were former Democrats or people that didn't vote ever before. You see many of those too. And so this shift is happening right now. And it is the Republican Party is starting to articulate what they are going forward. And I believe it's a party that's a little bit more socially conscious that probably doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't hold the, the social values of yesterday's Republican Party. And that makes it much more palatable to young voters, people my age. And yeah. um, so th that's happening as we speak. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I think it is a very interesting shift. Do you think that the Republicans and the Democrats are going to kind of split and create these like new parties, for example, a party that's more populist versus the establishment Republican Party versus the establishment Democratic Party? Or do you really believe that there will always be two parties that, that are some version of the Democrats and the Republicans? Yes, I believe that there are, I the way that our system is architect, I believe that we are a two-party system, and I don't know if it's called Democratic Party or Republican Party, though I imagine that those brands will remain. But what defines those um, brands w will change. And so to answer your question, I don't think that we're going to have like a liberal party and a Democratic Party and a conservative party and a Republican Party. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I mean, that, that, that shift um, that has taken place in France um, in the most recent election, where you, for the first time, didn't have an establishment party um, at, at, at the lead or in, in, in the runoff, excuse me. Um, yeah, I don't see that happening here. And th that's largely a function of the fact that our system is just set up differently, whereas they had a jungle primary, right? I mean, that's basically sure. that's the, the best term that I can use to describe what they were doing. Um, and uh, in, in, unless we change the very way that we administer our elections, I don't see this changing. Now, okay, I want to get to the Democratic Party. So mm -hmm. throw out a couple names for me. If they were mm -hmm. smart, who do you think that they would kind of select as their up-and-coming leaders to bridge the gap between these two factions and lead them into the future in a, in a way that's strong? Well, that is a very good question. And I, I'm going to have a difficult time answering it because... I don't believe that there's even a political novice that's currently on the national stage or a step beneath the national stage on the Democratic side it's, that, that comes without baggage. There, there, there's no one. I mean, even, even if you point to the Castro's, I believe that they've got some political That's baggage. who I was just about to ask you about. Well, no, no. I, I, I'm not saying that they don't have a future. I, I'm saying that I wouldn't recommend them. <laughs> so, okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, so I, I, see, I see a difference there. I mean, you also have someone... And this is a little bit more of an obscure name, but Ro Khanna, who is a freshman congressman um, who mm. just came in from California. He's in Silicon Valley, and he's a little bit more of a pragmatic Democrat um, to some extent. He's not a hardcore progressive, um, and I think that's largely a function of a lot of his donors were big Silicon Valley uh, CEOs and venture capitalists and stuff like that. And so maybe someone like that – I'm not saying it's necessarily Ro – but someone like that could step up and could be a little bit more of a pragmatic Democrat that's less ideological and more about just getting stuff done. Do you think um, someone that's like that who I could hope. bring on the Bernie people, though? No, but you, I, I don't. I don't. Not at this stage, because um, I believe a lot of Bernie voters are largely disenchanted 
And um, while they're important to the nominating process of the Democratic in, in the Democratic primary, um, I I question whether you need to bend the entire Democratic Party to the whims of the Bernie wing of the party. I think that's the mistake Hillary Clinton made. If Hillary Clinton had run as uh, as she did in 2008, which is a little bit more of a third way Democrat, a little bit more of a moderate Democrat, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think she could have won. But the problem is during the worst decision she ever made was being Barack Obama's secretary of state because she got all kinds of baggage. The email server came out of that. She was tied to the Obama administration irreparably. And she and, and, and because of Bernie's success, she she felt like she had to move to the left. She should have stayed a moderate Democrat, which is what she really is. But um, but, you know, she's disingenuous and she she wasn't able to do that. Um, so so my point is the Democrats should be hesitant to fully embrace the far left socialist leanings of the Bernie side. They should listen to their concerns because the concerns of the Bernie wing are legitimate, but their solutions I think are problematic. Okay, I'm with you there. I get that. However, you're a millennial. I'm a millennial. At least most mm-hmm. of my friends did support Bernie Sanders. They do seem to be more progressive than what I would call older, you know, more traditional mm-hmm. Democrats. So yep. I, I see the party going to the left. And to let's just look at the way millennials voted in this election. Mm-hmm. Hillary only won 55% of the millennial vote, which is much lower than expected. Trump only mm-hmm. almost got 40%. But we got we to gotta point out that the overall uh, number of millennials who voted was much smaller than in 2012 and 2008. So if millennials are progressive and they are to the left of the traditional Democrats, how how is the Democratic Party going to survive by staying more to the center? And also just how do you see the millennial vote going in the future? No generation politically has been stagnant. We change over time. I mean, I, I hate if this sounds trite, but, you know, as you progress through life, as you get married, as you have kids, as you go to buy that first house, different you, you, you have different expectations of society and government. And so I think we as a generation, as millennials, will evolve. What's defining our generation right now is we came of age during this era of Obamanomics in the post-recession era. And we had a hard time financing our college. We had a hard time um, finding jobs when we got out of school, still do. You know, we, we have a hard time affording to get married. We have a hard time buying our first home. We have a hard time buying our first car. So we put on big life decisions as a result of it. At some point, we're going to break through that, and we're going to be in an amazing economic engine for this country, and we're going to have different expectations of ourselves. That's if this economy gets moving again. If we don't, and millennials wallow in self-pity and we never are able to break out of that, then, then you know maybe we do break into this cycle where millennials are dependent on, 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 on big government and socialism. But I, I, you know, if you look at recent American history – you know, we've had recessions and we've had downturns and we, we bounce back, assuming we bounce back. And I and I would never bet against the American economy. I think the, the interest and the focus of millennials will change. 
I seriously hope you're right on that. Me too. Uh, Harlan, I know you're, you've are you got to get going. You're a busy guy. But real quick, you're one of the most vocal Trump supporters on cable TV. How do you think Trump is doing so far? Give him a grade. I'd give him uh, a 7.5. Out of 10. I out of 10. I really okay. liked what he did with his foreign policy. I mean, he, this guy's this guy had no foreign policy experience, but he rose to the to the occasion in Syria and with North Korea and he's done a fantastic job. Healthcare reform I'm not too happy with so far. We'll yeah, see. Me and you both. And he's also dealing with a, a Congress that's certainly not helping him get the job done. But 7.5, that is a fair score and uh, mm-hmm. I am on I'm on the same page with you there. All right, Harlan Hill, you have got to follow him on Twitter. It's simply at Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N. Find him on his website at harlanhill.com. You've seen him all over TV. Harlan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, that's all I got this week. Uh, Make sure you hit subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss any future podcast episodes. Uh, I've got one hell of a guest lined up for next week. You are not going to believe who it is. And uh, I would totally appreciate it if you would check out my Patreon page. Patreon is where you can give small donations to humble artists like myself. And uh, I do this because I love it. So anything you can give me to help keep the lights on would be much appreciated. All right. Thank you so much. And until next week, babes.